Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast, your one source for solo and co-op discussions, mainly co-op. And on the co-op front, today we are looking at Hero Realms, specifically the solo and co-op play that comes with the campaign expansions they've been doing recently. And if you follow along, you know we always do a design discussion at the end, and this time we're going to be talking about card luck and things that you can do with it as a designer and what's been done in the past. Should be a fun episode, but before we get into that, let's thank some of our amazing Patreon supporters. This week, we'd like to thank Bradley Newville, who's a co-op fan, Greg Belding, who's a co-op fan, and successful Geek, who's a co-op lover. Thank you to you three and to all our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join us on Patreon, go check it out on patreon.com slash one stop. We have a lot of great perks like early access to our videos, playing games with us on Tabletop Simulator, lots of fun stuff. Yeah, and sorry I was running a little bit late tonight. I was actually watching Spider-Man Far From Home with my daughter, so it was uh, <laughs> it was all for a good cause. I watched that with my sons uh, several months back, and I enjoyed it pretty much. <laughs> yeah, we only got about halfway, three-quarters of the way through. She knows the big reveal from it, but uh, I don't want to spoil it from anybody else out there, but she's really enjoying it and look forward to playing or uh, not playing. Usually we're playing something, but watching it again tomorrow. Yeah, the big reveal is that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. So, sorry, everyone. Shh. <laughs> Don't tell people. They might not know. You know, I did play my first ever... All right, so this goes back to my love of Keyforge. My first ever, like, local Keyforge tournament, I played against a guy named Parker. And on the sheet, it was written, Peter Parker. Because I'm Peter, and I was playing against Parker. And so they had our first names written next to each other. And he drew a picture of Spider-Man on the sheet, and I didn't get it. That just tells you how quick I am. I was like, why did you draw Spider? He's like, Peter Parker. I was like, oh, yes, yes. So anyway, one of my, actually, I think that was my first ever Keyforge tournament game was against a guy named Parker. Did you win that game, Peter? I actually did. My first ever game. And Parker's really good, too. I played many times against him since then. And uh, I don't think I've been as successful. So it all came together that first day. My spider sense (laughs) was uh, working. (laughs) Nice. All right, so we're going to get into our review of Hero Realms first. And to be very specific, this is, again, a campaign mode. It comes if you buy the separate set, The Ruins of Thandar, which I think retails for $20 to $25. And also they say you have to own the different hero packs, which are fairly cheap if you can find them. But we might discuss that whole kind of situation later. Yeah, I think that'll be good for final thoughts. But I guess I'll get into the theme. Well, the theme for this one is, I don't want to give away too much, but you basically start in a bar brawl, and then you kind of chase some people down and hunt them down. But it is basically, you know, your generic fantasy world, although you do get a little bit into their universe here, and I like it. I like what they did with it. Yeah, the the kind of like cult thing, again, not to get too much into the story. I thought it was a... A nice little take on things. It was kind of fun. Yeah, they they spun it a little bit. You know, it's generic fantasy pretty much, but they they put you in a unique, interesting world. It's almost like D&D is generic fantasy, right? But you can be put into some of these great universes they have. And I think they did a good job here with that. Not to get too much into the review, but I like the story. I was about to say, it sounds like you're already telling your thoughts on the game. But let me get into the basic mechanics. This is uh, the core Hero Realm system, which is based on the Star Realms system from the same company, White Wizard, which is based on Dominion and all those other games and Ascension. So basically, it is a deck builder. You start with 10 cards. You draw five card hands each turn. And the core resources your cards will generate are either attack or gold. And then some resources will heal your hero because you've got this hero with a set amount of life. So you'll use the gold to buy new cards, going to your discard pile, making your deck stronger, and you'll use the attack to attack your opponent. And in this case, in the campaign play, your opponent is a master. So you'll go through this uh, little campaign with branching paths, fight different masters. Uh, Before your turn, the master will draw one or two cards based on their current level. 
Uh, the card will have one of four colors on it, which will trigger something for the master, usually some type of damage or some effect. And then you'll resolve the card itself, which will often spawn a minion that kind of blocks your attacks until you get rid of them and keeps on attacking you, or a hazard that has ongoing effects. And then you get to play your turn, like I said, generating gold and attack. The attack can either go to minions that are in play, you can attack each other's minions when you're playing cooperatively, or you can attack the master. And you have to take out the master, get rid of all of their life, before your heroes are defeated. If this is your first time joining us, thank you. And what we do here is we talk about the top five things we think about the game, starting with number five, which is the least important thing, working our way all the way up to number one, which we think is the most important thing you should know about the game. So, Mike, why don't you start it off? What's your number five thing about Hero Realms? So my number five, and again, this is focusing on the campaign play, not Hero Realms in general. My number five is how the campaign lets you upgrade your characters. So it's pretty neat. You've got sort of two main types of upgrades Uh, First of all, in the character packs, we already mentioned that you're supposed to own when you play this. They give each of your characters both a once-per-game ability and a every-turn ability that costs gold and you have to tap. So you've got, like, both those cards in front of you they never get shuffled into your deck. So first of all, you can upgrade sometimes by advancing those cards, and they have, like, little branching levels. So, like, uh, you know, your level three might always be the same, but you can get two different level fours, or you can get one of three different level fives. So that's pretty cool. And then on top of that, they have these treasure cards that are unique to each of the five heroes that come again from those hero packs that go into your actual deck, uh, sometimes replacing cards or sometimes becoming just entirely new cards in your deck. But they have kind of upgraded your deck, where you'll always start with those cards, not just your basic starting cards, but with slightly better cards. So I like all of that. I think that's a lot of fun. The negative here is you only play three missions, which is going to kind of come into discussion later. And because you only play three missions, and they only give you generally like one permanent upgrade after each one. In just the course of this one set, you don't upgrade very much. So like the promise is there. I like the the path they're taking with the upgrades. But I think it's not entirely successful because you don't see enough, at least in this first set. You kind of need to imagine what it will look like as you play more. Yeah, it's funny. When we first got the game, I looked at it. I'm like, wow, there's 12 chapters in here. There's a lot of content. What I didn't realize is a chapter is not actually a chapter. Like, they'll skip you around and they'll jump you around. So I thought there were going to be a lot more missions than there were. But yes, I'm going to talk about the leveling system a little later. But I was a little disappointed that you only got to do it a couple times throughout the course of the book. And they have this really elaborate, and I'm assuming they're doing this because they don't want to have future rule books, like description of how you level yourself up and what happens if you max out and stuff like this. And there's zero chance you can max out like in these three missions. I mean, you literally get one or two level ups. You need like five or six to completely max out. So I thought it was interesting. I spent a lot of time reading that section because it was a little confusing Uh, as far as how to, like, level up and the branching paths and stuff. And then I realized later that you don't even use half of the stuff, so I didn't need to read that section. So if you get the rules, I will say, don't worry about the leveling section. You don't need, like, three-quarters of the branching stuff, and it's it's weird and confusing anyway. But I'm going to talk more about that later. All right, so my number five, I kind of blew it in my theme description, but I thought it was actually a very engaging story. For what it was, for what the game is, there are a lot of games like this where you're just playing cards and it's really a card game, like Marvel Legendary, stuff like that. Even people say Marvel Champions, right? It's just a card game, so they don't really get engaged in the story. But I thought the story here was actually really good, and I I got drawn in. You know, you're not reading it while you're playing, so during gameplay, it doesn't have a whole lot of effect on it. But for me, it made enough of an impression to make this top five list, and I, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I don't get into that in my list, but I don't disagree with you. I have kind of something tangentially related to that later. But yeah, it, it's pretty cool. I think like the, the setting and I like the, the bar fight kind of intro to it. It's, it's fun. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Mike. So what's your number four? So my number four is uh, the cooperation in the game. So this won't apply if you're just buying this for a solo experience. This is kind of a mix for me. It does have some things you can cooperate with. So as I mentioned, you can attack each other's minions if you don't have a minion of your own in front of you. And then there will also be these master minions that attack everybody uh, on each of their turns. So you really want to work together to take those out. So that's that's fine. And they also have some elements, like uh, just to kind of spoil some things from the first scenario, there's a card that'll make you attack the players next to you. Uh, There are some minions that you can hurt if you're not the person who they're in front of, so you can kind of attack them better if you're a different player. So they did add some nice things in. But here's the thing, why it's not fully successful again. 
the game was designed as a competitive game, and they haven't changed anything in the market. So none of the cards you buy will have any cooperative effect besides, again, just that basic cooperation of being able to hit things together and do damage. And you can't, like, combine attacks. So if my attack isn't enough to beat somebody, I can't, like, work with you. So it's fine, but you can tell this is kind of like a tacked-on mode for the game. And I was just thinking I would love something like Legendary Encounters, you know, where they have an entire card type. And they could have done this, like, very easily. They could have just added an extra pile of market cards that are specifically cooperative market cards, kind of like they have the basic uh, fire gems that you can buy every turn. Like, they wouldn't have had to change the entire market, but they could have included something with, like, giving other players card draw, or just something a little bit more interesting. Trading cards, I don't know. Uh, So there's not really a lot of cooperation. They did put in some clever elements, but in general, you are playing out your turn, and besides that you're all hitting the same boss, you aren't doing a lot of stuff together. Yeah, the only thing I could think of is some of the enemies say they're distracted, or easily distracted, or whatever it is, and so if they're attacked by somebody who's adjacent, you do double damage to them, but beside that, you're right. There's almost nothing in it that makes it cooperative that you do on your turn. It's really just the enemies. All right, so my number four is something I like in deck building games, which is stuff to spend your money on beside the cards in front of you. And what I mean by that is, as Mike explained earlier, you have this card in front of you that you can spend two money on to do something that relates to your character specifically. So each character has one of these cards and you can even upgrade it throughout the course of the campaign. I just like something besides spending money on the cards in the car road in front of you And not only that, but as you buy cards, you typically end up putting them onto your discard pile, but certain cards will mess with that. So I like that, you know, though you put it in your hand or put it on top of your deck or whatever, but you can also spend your money to buy these generic gem cards that are in there. So they give you two money back and you can trash them, get them out of your deck completely to do three damage. Now that's all in the base game, but I just like that there are different places to spend your money. Also, when you buy a card, you immediately replace it. So maybe you do have a reason to buy some of these cheaper cards, and that way you can replace the card and maybe get something that you'd want to spend your money on. So if I have eight money and there's not really that many good cards, maybe I'll buy a one-cost card, hoping that you know a seven-cost card or something better will come out. Plus, they do give you different reasons to buy the cards as well, which I think is a good trait in deck-building games. So not only are you buying the cards because you know, you want the damage or whatever, but you might be buying it for the symbols in the upper left-hand corner, which when you match them, they kind of work together. So there are several different reasons to buy things differently in the game. And I like it's not just buy the most expensive card. Yeah, I'm going to touch on that a little bit later. But my number three, which goes a bit back to the good storyline that Peter talked about, I was fairly impressed with the scenario design here. Each of the basically three scenarios you play through, although they do have some branching in terms of which master you fight, have a kind of key theme to them and have at least one core mechanic that is different from all the other ones. And then additionally, they each have a numbered deck, one, two, or three, of unique card that you won't see in the other ones that give each one another kind of unique feel to it. So they could have gone really basic here, like just had different bosses you fought each time. But I appreciated that they really made each one have kind of its own thing going on. They even in one of them have like a little uh, card you can draw that sends you back to the encounter book to like read a special encounter. So I, I appreciate that. I thought like in a very streamlined, straightforward experience, they did take the time to make the actual quests seem pretty cool and unique uh, separate from each other. I think they did a good job. For something that is quote-unquote tacked on, which I believe you're right, you know, this clearly wasn't originally designed to be a cooperative game, I think they did a good job with the enemies and the missions. So I totally agree with all of that. All right, so my number three is the enemy activation. And as Mike explained in the rules explanation, all you do is flip the top card over. You'll see a color in the top left corner. It activates. If it's a white color in the top left corner, then they'll do their special power, which will be one of the other four colors in the deck. And it'll have like a little special symbol around it. And even for one of the bosses, it was you activate all of the symbols one after the other. So... I just thought it was neat how in a very simple system, they have you activate the boss, and then that card does something itself. So after the card's activated, then you either put the card in front of you, you put it in front of the boss, maybe it's a trap, maybe it's a one-time event. So there are a lot of variety in those boss activation cards, but the whole thing is done in like 20 or 30 seconds. 
And then things stay in front of you. So if you don't kill the stuff in front of you next turn, they're going to attack you again on the following turn. So with such a simple system, so little amount of cards, they really put a lot of action in there and a lot of variety in there. So I really like the enemy activation just all around. Yeah, that's funny. That's my number two. So I totally agree with you. I think it's really nice, really streamlined, quick to resolve. I had played uh, the Star Realms app a while back. And when you do kind of like solo scenarios in that, and I think these were even like solo variants for the card game, it was just the color that would make them like attack or do something else to you. So this having like a unique deck of effects that either stay in front of you or minions that kind of mess with you each round, uh, combined with the already very solid like color-based thing that they already had from Star Realms, I think works super well. Like if, if you want something really intense... Or if you want, like, Aeon's End, where every monster has super different mechanics, then it's not going to happen here. But it definitely is a solid system that works fine. I just realized we did this in the Dragon game. It didn't even occur to me. But, you know, with our number, our cards are number one through five. And in one of the missions, we absolutely activate the enemy and activate it itself. So, I mean, we do it to a much lesser scale than they do here. But uh, that's interesting. I'm glad I like it so much here because uh, we definitely designed it into one of our games <laughs> before we had ever even played this. Yeah, I mean, it's a nice, like, one-two punch of really simple activation while still keeping it kind of unique. Like, the color can stay the same, but the card is different. So, yeah, it works well. Yeah, no, good job, guys. I wish I had played it first. It wouldn't have taken us so long to come up with that idea. <laughs> All right, so my number two is big combos. And this is what you want in deck-building games. I mean, this is the kind of thing where... You'll, at the beginning of the game, do one or two damage here, one or two damage there. At the end of the game, my last turn of the game I played with Nicholas, I did 22 damage. And sometimes even earlier in the game, you'll do tons of damage. So it's weird. It's the kind of the game where you'll be plinking away, plinking away, plinking away, and then all of a sudden, everything's going to come together one turn, and you'll do just like a million damage or heal up like 20. Now, this is good and bad. I mean, it makes you feel really cool when you do that. But there are a lot of turns where you won't get those combos and you'll feel like you're not really doing a whole lot. And it's like, oh, man, how are we ever going to beat this guy? And then all of a sudden you just draw like everything comes together and it just all blows up or maybe it doesn't. And that's, you know, something we could talk about in our card luck discussion later. But certainly you need cards to come out together because you're buying them. As I was saying earlier, you know, they have the symbol in the upper left hand corner. If the symbols match, they really synergize well together and do really cool stuff together. And it really does encourage you to buy stuff in sets. But sometimes it just never triggers or it takes a while. And then when you finally get it, you know, then you blow the enemy to smithereens all in one turn. So if you like those big turns, if you like those big combos, this game definitely has it in there, and it'll make you feel powerful at times, that's for sure. I think I like it a lot in the cooperative version. I'm not sure how I would feel about it if it happened against me in a competitive version. Yeah, and I'm, I'm totally with you on that. I think it works better cooperatively, at least for me, because I'm the kind of player that even feels bad <laughs> when I like pull off a ridiculous combo against another player. So I'd much rather kind of do it against a shared enemy. But yeah, your number two and your number three kind of combine into my number one, which is the <laughs> the grab bag that I put all of my regular Hero Realms stuff into. And this is definitely like a pro for me overall. I think Hero Realms, it's a really smooth playing, really quick, really nice combo-licious deck builder. And the thing I like best, and I wasn't sure how much I liked this, but playing the game more, I definitely enjoy it. Maybe uh, playing solo and co-op helped me to see that. I really do love their whole color combo thing. Uh, if you don't know the basics, a lot of cards that you buy from the market, they'll have one of the four colors, and they'll have their basic effect, but then, like, at the bottom of the card, they'll say, if you've played another card that's blue, or if you've played another card that's green, like this card is green, then you get a bonus power. And one of my biggest complaints against games that are, like, Ascension, where uh, you just have a random market of cards come up, is that, generally speaking, the highest cost card is the best, so the best strategy is to buy the highest cost card you can every time. And Peter already said you have nice buying options with, like, the powers. But additionally here, the combo power of getting two of the same color together is often much higher than buying a card that might be twice as much gold as uh, any of those, like, one cards by themselves. So I like that uh, the game encourages you to get those color combos going off. And honestly, I feel like that's better in co-op here 
because you can pick the color that is like your core color and you're actually like culling through the market, helping each other out by clearing out cards that don't match other people. Like if I'm getting all the blues and uh, Peter's getting all the greens and reds, then uh, the third player will have all the uh, the blacks available for them to grab right away. So you can like really make sure that your decks work out just the way you want. I think it uh, is really cool. So yeah, Core Hero Realms is good. And I think uh, for me at least, kind of like you said, Peter, it's even better in the cooperative realm. Yeah, and I know Legendary did this as well. So, I mean, all of these have something in common, which is the shared row. I mean, Dominion has its, you have your 10 piles of cards out. But Ascension, Legendary, and Hero Realms all have one mashed up pile of stuff. And I'm pretty sure Legendary had it where they would trigger off of other cards that you had played also. And maybe even Ascension. Well, the, the, the thing is for Ascension and uh, Legendary, they have it sometimes. Right. Like some cards will have a combo. Yeah, and Ascension, I, if I remember correctly, it was mostly like just the uh, like the green suit or whatever. They would have lots of combos, but yeah, Hero Realms, they just and Star Realms, of course, they just went all in. They're like ninety percent of the cards are gonna have a combo with uh, cards of the same color, so you can just always buy something in the same suit and get cool combos happening. All right. Well, I said I'd get back to it, and <laughs> I'm sure you're probably shocked since it was your number five. But my number one is a leveling system. I thought it was really cool. So when you're designing a game, at the end of the game, you always want to give players something that makes them want to put the game back on the table again. And this leveling system was really fun. Like Mike said, you're only getting like one new card and maybe you'll get a temporary upgrade like a potion that you can use on the next mission. But that one card, it's like, oh my gosh, it's this card, but even better. Or, oh, I get this whole new card in my deck that really, like, helps my deck sing and does something really cool. So you're getting, like, random treasures, or maybe you're upgrading a card in your deck, and you have, like, three choices. You can upgrade your one card that you trash for the game, you can upgrade your one card that you can use every turn that you spend too money on, or you can just upgrade your life. So all of those things, I mean, I don't know, I didn't upgrade my life. Maybe that wouldn't feel as cool. But all the other things, like, really make you feel like you're increasing in power and again it's such a simple system but there are choices in there you know a lot of times when you're leveling not only can you choose the three ways but usually there's multiple things you can do within those paths so i really just like the leveling system in general and it made me want to get the game back to the table the only sad part about it as mike said is you're only playing three missions so you get to level up twice you do get to level up after the third mission but then they leave you high and dry because there's no other content right now. So, yeah, I really like the leveling system. I just wish I could do it more. All right, so I'll jump into my final thoughts with that. And this one's a little bit complicated. I think you can hear that I pretty much like all the core design of the game. But it's a weird one because, you know, it's tacked on to a competitive game by design. And... What you buy, you have to buy a bunch of different products to play this. You have to get the base Hero Realms. You got to get at least the first campaign pack. And I think the second one, which is like village-themed, I forget what the name of it is, that's coming out. It just delivered to Kickstarter backers, so I imagine that'll be in retail pretty soon. And I guess that would uh, balloon it up to six missions instead of only three. And then you have to get these Hero Packs. So if you add all that together, you're paying as much as you probably would for like a core Aeon Zen box or a Legendary Encounters box, and you're paying more than you would pay for something like Battle for Greyport. So, you know, the question becomes, is it worth it just for the solo and co-op? And I would say, as much as I enjoy it, I'd probably recommend several of those games first, because they provide, I think, a better cooperative experience. They're designed for co-op. This game might be more accessible than them, though, which does kind of muddy the whole recommendation thing, because if you want a more accessible game to play with people, maybe this is the one to go for. So, I don't know. But here's the thing. If you're going to play Hero Realms competitively sometimes, and you'll get, like, the full value out of that, then I can fully recommend this. But if you just want a solo co-op deck builder, I'm not sure that I would recommend this over something like Aeon's End or Battle for Greyport. I think it's got its own thing. I think it might be, again, easier than either of those to learn. But I also think they kind of have a better co-op going on. So, I don't know. I, I pretty much recommend it, but it's a little mixed there. Yeah, it's funny. You took almost every word out of my mouth with your final thoughts. It, it's one of those things where I had so much fun playing it, but an hour and a half later, I was done. 
you know, you play through it once. Yeah, you could play through it a couple other times because there are definitely different bosses that you can get. And there is a little bit of randomization of how you get the different bosses. And, and I'm having fun playing through it a second time with my son. And you have different heroes you can play. So, I mean, I guess you're going to get value that way. But the story is not going to change. And the story was one of my favorite parts. And the leveling, I do like to see the different levels, the way the different heroes level. And to be honest, you're not going to get all the level ups. So even if you played the same hero, you might get a different one. So I guess there's some replayability there. I don't know. I don't know. I, f- I have the same feelings as you because just to get the starting box, you know, everything's cheap here, right? It's like $20 for the starting box, $5 for a hero pack. Well, there's five different hero packs. So now you're looking at, you know, close to $50, then $20 more for the expansion. So it balloons in price. And I agree. I don't know if you sold me this whole box for $50 or $55, I don't think it'd be a good value. And so that's what you're looking at here, or if not more. And so, yeah, it's one of those things. If you get it just for co-op, I don't know if you'll get your value. If you're going to play it separately, then I think you will. And I think as more and more expansion packs come out, I think it becomes more and more worthwhile. So, for example, if it's 20 bucks for another three missions or five missions, maybe they even increase the content. Now you're looking at, you know, because you already have that core investment, right? The base box and the five hero packs. And you don't have to get all five. You can get one or two that you like. So if you do that, that'll certainly cut down on the cost. But then the packs themselves, the story packs, maybe that's where it becomes more and more of a value as more and more of these story packs come out. But I just don't know if there's enough gameplay in the first three if you're not going to play it competitively as well. And then you can also buy these Lord packs where you can do one versus many. I haven't done that, but it seems really cool because, you know, you get one person gets to be a dragon in one of them. And just from what I've seen, I trust them as far as design goes. The design here is great. I've had a lot of fun with it. You know, I thought it was a little random the first couple times I played it, but the more I play it, the more I definitely see things you can do and combos you can do, and I'm really enjoying the experience. So, I mean, I highly recommend playing it. Do I recommend investing in it? That's the hard part right now because I don't know the price matches the value you'll get if you're only playing it cooperatively, which is exactly what Mike said. All right, so a bit of a mixed recommendation there. Fully recommended if you're going to play competitive too, I think, from both of us. But if you want just solo and co-op, play it first and see what you think. That's going to take us into our design discussion. Uh, Peter especially mentioned that you might have card combos come out or the master's worst or best cards might come out early. So we're going to get into card luck. And I think we've kind of talked about randomness in discussions in the past, but a lot of times that focuses on dice randomness and cards and kind of card draw have their own kind of swings on thing. So Peter, how do you want to start this off? The first time I saw card drawing kind of as a randomizer replacing dice was in Catan. I don't know if you remember that, where they had the deck of cards where it would have every combination that you could roll in that deck. So it would have, you know, two ones. It would have a one and a two. It would have a one and a three. They had every combination and it was so you wouldn't get these wild swings of luck. You know, you'd at some point get every single combination. So the dice luck would push itself out. Basically, it would eventually get back to a more neutral situation. And what I've seen lately, though, is it go the other way, where there's some wildly swingy cards that people are putting in there. And depending on whether you get them early or late will make a huge difference in the game. And I guess in that Catan situation, it would too, because if you already built out three different places and the numbers hit when you already have them built out versus at the beginning of the game, maybe you just needed one more wood to build someplace or you would have gotten two resources instead of one, you know, maybe there's some swinginess in that as well. So I think people tend to think of card swinginess as not as lucky, but I actually sometimes feel that it can go the other way, but we'll get into that in a minute. What are your initial thoughts on this? Well, yeah, I mean, I think what you're talking about is one of the key things of kind of cards versus dice, which is that the cards have memory, right? And once a card is in the discard pile, you can't draw it again. Now, (laughs) some games are going to change that, might have uh, elements that make you reshuffle the deck frequently. But yeah, that's one of the key things. And even with uh, Catan, what you just mentioned, that's a kind of special case because the dice affect everybody equally, right? So if you're benefiting from an eight, I can theoretically benefit from that eight as well, whether you drew it on your turn or my turn. 
But a lot of games that use card for luck, it matters who draws the card, right? And whose uh, player pilot goes into. Luckily, that doesn't matter as much for solo and co-op, because in theory, if I'm drawing a great card, it's going to benefit the entire team. But at competitive, that certainly matters. Like, I remember uh, there's another older game that did this uh, Duel of Ages, had options to play with a card deck instead of dice like Catan. And you could either play with a single deck that you both draw from, or you could play with each of you having your own deck. And I always preferred the own deck because my bad luck would be balanced by my good luck later. But again, mainly in competitive, if you have a kind of shared deck with good and bad cards, if all the bad cards go to you and all the good cards come to me, that's not, I think, an entirely fulfilling experience. And that can like make a game feel swingy just from cards. Yeah, so you get a deck like this in Gloomhaven as well, where each of you has your own combat modifier deck, and actually the enemies do as well, and they modify, so you're not rolling dice, but you're drawing cards from this deck to see whether you are hitting or missing, or how much more or less damage you're doing. The one thing they do there, which is really neat, is they let you play with that deck. So it's almost like if you had dice, you could customize the sides of the dice, but they let you do it here where you get to modify and mess with that deck, either taking out negatives or adding positives or putting blessings in, or the enemies will mess with you by putting curses in your deck, which make you miss more. So there's a lot you can do with cards, which I don't think you have the ability to do with dice yet, at least not with you know most of the games we're playing with them today, where you can modify that. Although I guess games like Imperial Assault will let you upgrade your dice going from yellow dice to red dice or whatever else. So I guess dice do have their own unique way of playing with stuff, but cards definitely have a way that you can mess with the probabilities in those decks. Sure, and I'm thinking of the token bag in Arkham Horror LCG as well, where you can kind of that kind of gets modified in a negative way. It gets tougher as you go along through the scenarios. But yeah, you've got this this modification of what you're drawing from, which is going to be difficult or impossible with dice. And that also goes into, I think besides the cards having memory, one of, I think, the, the core debates to discuss with card luck. And this goes back to uh, conversations we had with Richard Launius while we were uh, discussing uh, game design and working on a game with him. You can either go where the cards are balanced pretty tightly along a similar average. So yes, a card might benefit someone more or less based on the table situation, but in theory, that card is, you know, card A has been balanced against card B has been balanced against card C. They all have similar power levels. Or you can have it where some cards are ridiculously more powerful and some cards are much, much less powerful. Uh, I'm thinking of something like Sentinels of the Multiverse. They went really for that second option where some of the cards the villains draw will just like wipe your entire board and do horrific things to you. And if you never draw that in the course of your game, that's going to be a way easier game than if you do. So it kind of lends the swinginess. That's the negative side, right? Uh, you have more of a balance. You have more predictability to how cards will come out versus the swinginess. But the big point that Lanius made that stuck with me because I think it is an important thing to remember is that... The swing of extreme cards, both good and bad, can contribute to some of the strongest emotional and memory-building experiences with a game. Like, I've uh, just recently filmed a playthrough of Wars of Marcus Aurelius, the solo card game. And there's a card that you draw three cards for the bad guys every turn. There's a card that once you draw it, you stop drawing cards for that turn. So if you draw it the first card of the bad guy's turn, they do nothing for that entire turn. And suddenly you get this whole reprieve where you get to do crazy stuff on your turn. And that card might be totally unbalanced. And they have a, another card in there that shuffles the deck. So you might never draw it or you might draw it every time you go through the deck, making the game way easier or harder. But man, does it have an emotional impact when I draw that card and just like cheer or breathe a sigh of relief. And totally balanced cards are never going to give that to me, right? So I think there's a pro and con to this. You know what I'm talking about, right, Peter? Oh, yeah. No, I've come totally 360 on this. Uh, or maybe 180, because I'm facing the other way now. You know, I was very much into balance when we first started this. And I think this is a co-op versus competitive thing, too. It bothers me when there's really swingy cards in competitive games. But cooperative, it doesn't bother me as much. Although, you know, some of the most negative experiences you can have, I know we've talked about it before with like Lord of the Rings LCG, when they have those cards, they flip up and sometimes they'll just kill you in one go. You know, I'm not a fan if it's that swingy, but I think what you were just talking about there with that Marcus Aurelius card is really interesting 
because when it swings, it swings in your favor. So the game's normally crushing you, but every once in a while, it'll give you a reprieve. I think that might be a better way to do it, because I'm also thinking about Marvel Champions, and you have that card, which is Shadows of the Past, which is one of the coolest mechanisms in the game, to be honest. It's like your nemesis comes in, he brings in a scheme with him, and he shuffles some terrible cards into your deck. Well, if you get that on like the first turn of the game as your first draw, it's going to be a way different game than if you get it in the middle to end of the game. So I think sometimes the mistakes we make as designers is making standard difficulty the norm and then having really big swings either way. Maybe the way to do it So it feels better is to do really hard difficulty almost every turn, but you can get a break from it from one of these really swingy cards. So no, I used to be right down the middle with you. Like I want, I wanted everything to be very balanced. You'd have a balanced experience. You weren't going to swing too hard either way, but I do think you need those moments in games where everybody gets up and cheers. And I think the problem sometimes that we have as designers and, you know, we fall into this too is the moment you stand up at the table, it's because of anger, not because of cheers, right? Like all these cards I could think of are cards that make you get really emotional the other way. So I don't know. It's just something I thought of right now, but I like the swinginess of the cards. I just think maybe we should swing them in a positive way more. No, that's a great point. It's making me think as well, because it kind of comes back to dice. I've been on record several times saying I adore the way the Sadler brothers have done dice in their Blacklist games, where there's basically no miss, first of all. Like, the quote-unquote worst result basically just gives you some kind of success for later, like kind of banks a success for you. But they also have the best result being an exploding die, where you can get tons of stuff. So on the hero side of the randomness... You either do pretty good or you do amazing. And they've kind of balanced around that. You know, like that's how the entire game is built. So that amazing is okay and pretty good isn't going to win you the game every time. And I think, yeah, with you saying it, I hadn't thought of it before either. I think that might be a good way to go with card randomness. Because I think a lot of people just, you know, we're doing our own game like this right now. A lot of people might have event cards from one to five difficulty. And the initial impulse might be to make those totally balanced or have mostly threes and then a few ones and a few fives. But maybe you're right. Maybe it's better to balance the whole game with almost everything being fours. So the fives aren't that much worse. It's not like in Sentinels where, oh, you draw that one card, boom, you're done. But the ones are amazing, you know, (laughs) like really make you feel like blessed by the gods. Like, oh my gosh, everything has gone my way. This turn is awesome. Maybe that's a way to balance kind of in the same vein. Well, actually, I guess in a way it's the opposite of the Sadler brothers with their dice, where everything is always good and it only gets better. Uh, Balance your cards such that, because it's the enemy side of things, not what you're rolling, it's what the enemies are drawing. Balance the cards such that everything is pretty darn bad to begin with and only gets a little bit worse, but can get really amazing sometimes. That's definitely how Marcus Aurelius does it now that you mentioned that kind of philosophy. Yeah, so here you go. You are hearing us live expanding, and that's why we did this podcast. In all honesty, we did this so we could have discussions and come up with ideas, and maybe they're good and maybe they're not. You guys as designers, you know, design this into your own stuff and see what you think. I think we are probably going to start changing our philosophy on how we do event decks and things. Now, I do still think you should go, I I would say... My first impulse would be to go with the Sadler Brothers on the hero side of things. So let's say you are drawing your own cards. Have those cards go from being very good to awesome. You know, unless it's like a deck builder where you need to give them the the impulse and the motivation to expand their deck. But if that's like all they get, like you have a unique deck of cards someone is drawing from, you know, have those be pretty good to amazing. Don't have anything that's like absolutely terrible. Don't have like decks killing you. Although, uh, I don't know. <laughs> now I'm my, going against my own suggestion because I do like how, you know, Marvel Champions will have uh, your negative card. Oh, no, no, actually, that's right. Arkham has your negative card in your deck and Marvel Champions changed it to be in the enemy deck, right? Which I like better. Yes. So, no, no, I, 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 still, I still believe what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm glad you came back around. You went 360. See, I went 180. You went 360 and came back around to your original point. Well, I don't even know if I'm 360 because I was definitely, I feel like, the force, like, in Salvation Road, our first published design, I think I was the one who was arguing most strenuously for fully balanced, uh, like, apocalypse cards, the bad cards you draw. Yeah. And looking back now, if we ever did a reprint of that game, I would certainly have 
more variety and kind of tension of how bad or good the card will be. And some cards that do almost nothing pop up. Yeah, like I would certainly design that mechanic differently now. Not just after this conversation, but just after more experience in the, the, the industry. Sure. And we definitely had easier cards there, but they weren't mitigatable. That's what we wanted to make sure. And that's what we were talking about with balance. Like the ones that made you spend the most precious stuff were often the harshest cards, but you could mitigate it by spending these precious resources. So yes, all in all, they were balanced. But uh, yeah, I see what you're saying. I, I definitely feel like we could go back and do a much better job with the event cards there. But that's just one part of cards, right? Because what we've been talking about is deck building. And so there's the card luck with what you draw in your hand. We talked about Hero Realms today and how they had symbols that matched each other. And if you get a lot of matching symbols, and it doesn't even have to be that. It could just be cards that work really well together. I know some of the cards, one of the cards I had today with my fighter hero said if you do seven or more damage, draw a card. Well, you need to draw a handful of damage cards in order for that to work, right? So it does give you something to build towards, but you still need to draw it at the right time. You can't just draw it with four money cards. So there's that aspect of things too. Like when you have a deck of cards, how do you work and balance the luck out there? Aeon Zen does it. I mean, we could talk about mitigators next, but Aeon Zen does it where you don't shuffle your deck at all. So, you know, you're the one crafting that other games do it where you don't discard your hand at the end of the turn and some games don't do it at all. So what are your thoughts on different ways to craft a hand? Yeah, I mean, you hit a lot of the key things. I think an important design thing to keep in mind is if you are designing your game such that combos are the fun, you know what I mean? Like putting combos together, making combos happen is what's going to be the primary positive experience in your game. I would definitely include some mitigating factors. Uh, Peter already mentioned Aeon's End, you don't shuffle the deck. I think it was uh, Helionox, which is another uh, deck builder. I really love this mechanic. You draw a full hand of cards while still keeping your cards from last turn, and then discard down to the hand you're supposed to have. So you can literally see a larger, like, collection of combo possible cards and then decide which ones you want to keep uh, or games that let you play like cards as permanence again to mention Marcus Aurelius which I've been playing a lot recently uh, and that one you get five cards in the spring turn three cards in the summer turn and one card in the winter turn but you can keep up to five cards going into the next season so you're kind of encouraged to maybe underplay one turn to build up into a bigger turn the next turn so I, I love that personally, like kind of treating the cards as another resource, just like you might treat like, you know, wood in Settlers of Catan. You can build it up and build it up. I, I like that when games don't feel so beholden to you must discard your hand or you must have five cards each turn, but let you kind of make uh, strategic choices for how you use your cards and how you save your cards for later. Or even um, I've been playing this uh, solo deck builder recently that's kind of patterned after Magic, and Magic has this too. I'd love to see more co-op games that have that kind of thing, where you draw a limited number of cards, turns are ultra-fast, but strategically you don't want to play everything. Like, you need to very carefully be patient and choose when the right time to play your card is. Although I also love games like uh, Marvel Champions, where you get a new, fun set of cards to look at every turn. So there's lots of ways to kind of mitigate the luck, or give you more, fewer options each turn, or force you to make tough resource choices each turn. Yeah, it's just a fun kind of realm to explore, and many games have done it in different ways. Well, and other ways to mitigate it is to do one of your favorite things in game, which is culling, which means taking a card permanently out of your deck. So now you get rid of those starting cards that you had, and now you just have your better cards. And the more cards you have that take cards out of your deck, obviously the stream, uh, more streamlined your deck's going to be. Another way to do this, almost identical in my mind anyway, is card draw. So, you know, instead of getting rid of a card permanently, you draw more cards. So maybe you'll draw those bad cards, but then you'll draw more cards on top of it. And then a lot of games do both. So there's definitely ways to do it. As far as luck, I think Gloomhaven does interesting. It almost gives you a reroll where you draw two cards and you pick which one you want to use, or you draw two cards and you take the worst of those. So I think that comes right from something like D&D, &D, where you're at either advantage or disadvantage, and you take either the better or the worst of the two results. Yeah, and speaking of culling, I mean, this is getting kind of specific to deck builders, but... 
One of my favorite games for culling was another competitive one, Tyrants of the Underdark, because in there, and I think a few deck builders do this, uh, the cards you culled would earn you victory points at the end of the game. So you were actively encouraged not to call your worst cards, the usual thing you would do, because they'd be worth almost nothing to you, but to call your absolute best cards and to figure out like when you wanted to call them. Or I might look at something like Dominion, which is not quite the same thing, but where the best cards, the ones that are going to win you the game, also clog up your deck. It's kind of like reverse culling in that case. So, yeah, I think, <laughs> I don't know, just the memory of cards and having a card hand really makes the the decisions you have and how you kind of play things out really, really interesting. Yeah, now the one thing that I'll say that I don't like as much about cards, and it's more on the event deck side of things rather than the turn-to-turn. Like if you're drawing a full new hand of cards, it's a very different experience than something like an Arkham Horror or... So, I mean, you compare Marvel Champions to Arkham Horror. Marvel Champions, yes, every once in a while, you're going to get a bad hand of cards and something you can't really do a whole lot with. But something like Arkham Horror and Lord of the Rings, you're only really drawing one card a turn, so you're not really cycling through the cards fast enough. So the order you get things, the cards you get, really matter a lot more in you know early in that game than what you get toward the end of the game, typically. And that leads to something I don't like. When you have these games where you're only drawing one card at a time, whether it be event cards or whatever else, if you get those really bad ones early, it really makes a huge difference. Like, if I get Shadows of the Past on the first turn, it is going to wreck my whole game. I mean, it's I, I don't know that it's unbeatable, but it makes this scenario a million times harder than if you get it on the last turn of the game. Well, and that goes back to our earlier discussion of what is the, the range of the bad things that you're drawing or the goodness of the cards in your deck. If the range is very wide, you're going to have very different swings of games depending on how you draw things and when you draw them. But that can also be a positive. You know, like, yes, maybe that game where you drew Shadows of the Past the first turn was an incredibly tough game, more challenging than usual. And maybe you lost or maybe you barely won. But that also might be a more memorable and more varied game because of that option Whereas if you work more towards the middle and design more towards like kind of a consistent experience, everything might kind of feel samey eventually. No, that's true. That's very true. And like I said, I do, I have come full circle on this. I don't want things necessarily balanced toward the middle. I do want a little bit more variance. I just want, if it's going to be a slow burn, I almost want more mitigating factors, if that makes sense. Because with dice, if I get unlucky on one turn, it doesn't mean I'm going to get unlucky on the next turn. And with cards, sometimes I feel like if you're not churning through your whole deck a bunch of times, that you can get just all the bad cards or all the good cards. Sure. And I think that's where, like, you know, building in resource management, maybe you can, like, lose some of your life to draw more or, you know, get rid of a card to draw a replacement card. I think any of those sort of mechanics, again, just mitigation in general, are a positive thing to always think about when you have a card design, especially a cooperative one, because it's not fun in any cooperative game, but I think especially card games, to be the only person whose deck is not working and whose, like, things are not coming together and doesn't have any cool tricks to kind of run through. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you definitely don't want the one-card deaths. I mean, we've talked about that before. I, I know Forbidden Sky, that's what ruined that game for me. And you notice we didn't review that one. There's a reason for that. Just I had a miserable experience because we were doing well, well, well. Nothing's going wrong literally the whole game. And we had a one-card kill, you know, out of nowhere. And so it's like before the player got to play their next turn, you know, that person went from full health to dead. And it's like, well, there's nothing fun about that. It felt it felt random. It felt like there was nothing we could have done to mitigate it. You know, and there was obviously stuff we could have done, but we didn't know the game. It was our first game, and we thought we were doing well, and we thought we didn't have to worry about it. And so stuff like that where it's like a gotcha, ha-ha, you went from first place to last place. All of a sudden, doesn't that feel good? No, no, it doesn't. It never does. <laughs> All right, everyone, so there you go. Some discussion of card mechanics, card mitigation, card randomness, cards versus dice. Uh, get whatever useful stuff you can out of that one. We ranged around a bit, but I thought there was a lot of cool stuff in there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the one thing I said I, I'm going to take from it is let's start with the difficulty high and make those swingy moments swing so that you're happy. Make people feel good about you know the swings that they got, not the other way where you're swinging and, and one turn killing them. 
Yep, I'm, I'm with you all, all over that. All right, everyone, so thanks for listening to this episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Go check out our YouTube channel, subscribe over there, join the conversation on Slack and or Discord if you aren't on there already. We have the links in all of our videos and episodes. And if you like what you're hearing, support us on Patreon. we got some great perks for you. And if you're new to the podcast, make sure you listen after the credits because we have a lot of bloopers this week. That's, yes, we don't always, but this week we do. (laughs) All right, bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week with another Top 5 list. And on the co-op front, today we are... To thank Bradley Newville, great... This week, this week we'd like to thank Bradley Newville, who's a co-op... <laughs> He's a co-op... <laughs> yep. <laughs> This week, we'd like to thank Bradley Newville, who's a co-op fan, Greg Belding, who's a co-op fan, and successful geek, and successful geek, who's a co- what the <laughs> f- <laughs> Remember when I said we don't have bloopers? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and successful geek. G- <laughs> no, I'm saying it on purpose. <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. <laughs> So basic idea here is, is it a deck bu- So basically it is a deck builder you start with 10 cards you draw 5 cards hand each turn you draw 5 card hands each turn or you can attack the master and you have to take out and you have to take out the master get rid of all of their life before your heroes are defeated And what we do here is we talk about the top 5 things we think about the game starting with number 5 Wow <laughs> this is a contagious number 5 <laughs> Number five. <laughs> that's that's a new number, man. I like it. Yes, it is. Yes, I'm trying. I'm trying. It's, it's like when stuff. you have I'm, uh, I'm not five, even drinking five foods is... cooked in oil. It's five. <laughs> five. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And Gloomhaven does this, right? Gloomhaven's playing on the same system. You get a duck. A duck? You don't get a duck. <laughs> I don't know what duck you get in Gloomhaven. <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about. I love it. <laughs> I was trying to say the word deck, not duck. Oh, okay. <laughs> like your combat modifier deck? Yes. Hey, Mike. Yeah. I just got dealt four aces. No luck at all to that. <laughs> I didn't even, even get into poker. <laughs> I don't even have any cards. <laughs> hey, what game are we playing? <laughs>